Hello, I'm Dr. Stephen O'Day, and welcome to the Immuno-Oncology Curve, a podcast produced by Agenis. Agenis is a clinical stage biopharmaceutical company that discovers and develops immunotherapies for cancer. I'm the company's chief medical officer. I joined Agenis in 2021 after a long career as a medical oncologist and clinical researcher focused in melanoma and other clinical development of immunotherapies. My guests and I aim to keep you ahead of the curve on the latest in immunotherapy. We also share a common goal, which is to lengthen the survival curve for patients with cancer, and a common conviction, which is that immunotherapies are uniquely poised to make such progress happen. Please follow the Immuno-Oncology Curve, a podcast, but more importantly, a path, we believe, to much better outcomes against cancer. This is the first episode of Immuno-Oncology Curve, the first in a regular series. Firsts are important and special, so I'm sharing the microphone with a truly special guest today. I've known Alexander Egermont, Lex, personally for more than 20 years as a leader in the field of immuno-oncology, as a collaborator, and most importantly, a friend. His expertise spans surgical oncology, melanoma, sarcoma, clinical and translational medicine, cancer drug development, and of course, he's been a leader in immunotherapy across solid tumors. Lex, as many of his friends call him, currently serves as professor of immunotherapy at the University Medical Center of Utrecht and as the chief scientific officer at the Princess Maxima Center for Pediatric Oncology in the Netherlands. Lex holds leadership roles on key university faculties, and at cancer institutions in France and Germany. To set the scene for immuno-oncology in this first episode, reflecting back on where we've come from and looking ahead to the potential, I could imagine no better discussion partner than Lex Egerbach. Welcome, Lex. Yeah, thank you, uh, Steve. Um, uh, I'm very pleased uh, here uh, to be with you. Uh, we go back a long time, mostly in the melanoma field, but actually now, much more broadly in the immunotherapy development field. Um, but actually, I shouldn't be the first one to ask a question, I guess. But uh, Steve, you know, I never imagined you as a podcaster. So um, very happy to participate. But so tell me um, and tell us um, what motivated you to start uh, this uh, series. Well, Lex, you know, uh... Listen, I've been in this field for over 30 years as a clinician at the bedside, a clinical researcher, um, a, a passionate advocate of immunotherapy. I've seen the first revolution of, of immunotherapy produce incredible, meaningful outcomes in patients' lives. And as a communicator and, uh, and someone that is passionate about taking this to the next level. Um, I just, I feel like this is a great opportunity for me to share both my knowledge and lessons learned, but more importantly, interact with my colleagues around the world that I've been fortunate enough to work with to get their perspectives uh, and together really be at the forefront of this immuno-oncology curve. And it is the shape of the curve, Lex, as you know, that we've talked about in melanoma for a long time. 
that really is what differentiates immuno-oncology from historical cytotoxic and targeted approaches. So in the spirit of building a, a deeper understanding of immuno-oncology, let's, let's talk about both looking back and forward. But let's talk about looking back for a minute because you and I have a unique sort of perspective on where we come from. And I can remember, you know, obviously melanoma being really the prototype immunotherapy disease. But if you go back to Cooley's toxins and then interlesional BCG, and then of course the early vaccines and then the high dose cytokines and till cells, and then the checkpoint revolution, obviously, that has changed everything in, uh, throughout oncology. But let's go back to sort of just reflect on where we came from and how immunotherapy has emerged even before the first sort of breakthrough with checkpoints? Well, when you look back, um, you look basically back before the discovery of the checkpoint inhibitors. And you go back to a time where, of course, we did realize that the immune system must be playing an essential role uh, basically in any long-lasting response in cancer to basically any type of agent that you would use because the immune system is so essential uh, to overcome challenges from outside or, as is the case in cancer, challenges from inside, but challenges that are driven by uh, mutations, by a little bit different from self-mutations Therefore, differences that can be picked up and will be picked up by the immune system as threats, as stress signals, as something to clean up from the system and to protect the uh, integrity of the organism. So it was just only very logical that the immune system would have to play an important role also in the treatment of cancer. But we lived in a time where we found some modulators and stimulators of lymphocytes or prolifer proliferation factors of lymphocytes or by vaccines inducing T-cell, specific T-cell clones that would be able to tackle tumor cells. But we did not have the immune checkpoint inhibitors to really protect those T-cells. and to augment the T-cell armies in the body. And that's all of a sudden uh, what the checkpoint inhibitors brought uh, to the field, because on the one hand, with anti-CTR4, we found a protector against short-lived immune presentation and T-cell training. And we, with anti-PD-1, we found a protector of T-cell effector function. Uh, and without these two crucial factors, everything we did before was very short-lived uh, in general, or you had to be lucky, but it was short-lived and it didn't get to full expansion of T-cell function, and it did not guarantee prolonged T-cell function by the protection of, for instance, anti-PD-1 against neutralization of T-cells. So the checkpoint inhibitors have changed everything before we knew that the immune system had to be important. But this was, of course, then totally confirmed 
by the use of key regulators. And the two main key regulators are anti-CTLA-4 and anti-PD-1. And once you have discovered two key regulators, you will discover additional ones. So as you said, sort of, you know, historically we had these sort of anecdotal deep responses, whether they were with vaccines occasionally, but more importantly, IL-2 and other, uh, it was really the checkpoint revolution where we could actually study these in randomized trials and show the sort of impact on curves, particularly the response, duration of response, and then this, this magnified survival. But we spoke recently of, of in Madrid about, you, you, you had a schoolhouse analogy to the T-cell checkpoints. And I'd love you to share with the audience, uh, it, it was so meaningful in terms of sort of conceptualizing. Can you, can you share that a little bit with us? Well, I think it always helps to have a parallel type of system that will help you understand what are the essentials in the training function of the immune system and in the executive function of the, of, of the immune system. And anti-CTLA-4 is a monoclonal antibody that binds to CTLA-4 that is being expressed on T cells while they are being programmed by antigen-presenting cells, mostly in the lymph node compartment, to instruct T cells to recognize the tumor antigen and simultaneously get a proliferating signal to create a specific T cell army against a, an antigen that's being expressed and of importance on the tumor cell. So it's like the lymphocytes are in school. Where do they, where do they get instructed? Where do they go to school? They go to school mainly in the lymph nodal compartment. And what you want in cancer is prolonged education. You know, if a virus comes by and has a very highly specific antigen, you, a quick, speedy course to recognize that antigen may be sufficient to create a quick, relatively small army of T cells to eradicate that virus. This is what the immune system does to protect us basically every day. But in cancer, it's much more difficult because the antigens are not as outspoken as the viral antigens. So let's say the lesson material, the instructive material is not so absolute, but there are multiple antigens in tumors that may all be of importance to get multiple different T-cell clones that need prolonged stimulation and education to grow to a size that matters and that creates a memory in the immune system that remains. And so you can look at it as a prolonged course of recognition, instruction, and the creation of as many T-cell clones and as large a T-cell clone by prolonged instruction uh, by the anti-CTLA-4 molecule uh, of this process. So it's more intensive schooling and it's prolonged schooling through the immune system. So that's a great analogy with you know, acute viral uh, uh, infections. And uh, those antigens are very stimulatory and T cells quickly recognize and eradicate acute viral uh, uh, 
infections within 48 to 72 hours. And then this very potent checkpoint CTLA-4 comes up and puts those T cells into memory uh, for their next challenge. And of course that works well. In cancer, of course, as you said, these antigens are much more invisible or certainly not as prominent. Now in the hot tumor like melanoma with its mutational burden from UV exposure and maybe MS high tumors, obviously CTLA-4 and P1s have been very effective at generating and then uh, keeping these alive. But the the story of the first revolution is that as we moved outside of these more immunostimulatory tumors like melanoma, CTLA-4 unlocking that checkpoint didn't really lead to recognition. And obviously that to me is where the plateau is and where the next opportunity is. And Atagenis and, and others uh, companies were, were actively looking at better ways to allow CTLA-4 molecules to recognize and engage with co-stimulatory cells and molecules. So just talk to me a little bit about, you know, obviously the first revolution made tremendous success in a limited number of tumors with these checkpoints. What do you, how do you see where we go next? I mean, how are we gonna to get to another exponential sort of phase of, of, of IO success? So before I, I, I go there, I want to underline and underscore the phenomenal power of anti-PD-1 because you have uh, introduced a lot of different T-cell uh, clones with specificity against the tumor. And now these T-cells go into the circulation, they go to the metastases, and then they arrive in the metastases. And there they are being neutralized because these T cells express PD-1 on their surface. The tumor cells and the macrophages in the tumor microenvironment express PD-L1. And by that interaction, the T cells, although they were good pupils and they were smart pupils, they're being neutralized and they cannot function. They cannot have their executing tumor cell killing function. And so anti-PD-1, the other key regulator, protects the smart T cell against neutralization by the tumor cells and by the tumor microenvironment. And so anti-PD-1 is of phenomenal importance to make sure that the T cells who have been in instructed also can carry out, can execute their function. So in principle, you need a good school, you need a good schooling method, but you also need to protect your pupils to be able to execute what they have learned. And so in principle, you need both and both because of their different mechanism of action, they will work together in a synergistic manner. That also means that if the school material has been relatively poor, for instance, by tumors that express fewer antigens, they have a lower tumor mutational burden, the instruction material, so to speak, is of lower quality than in melanoma or in squamous cell cancers or in MSI uh, uh, or a tumor mutational burden high tumors, uh, DNA repair deficient tumors. Then you get less instruction material, but it is of absolute crucial importance that they still get prolonged exposure. 
to still learn as much as possible and then be protected by anti-PD-1 to execute what they have learned and kill tumor cells. And so then you see the spread across tumor types of uh, the efficacy of immunotherapy. And let's not forget right now, we have in over 20 different solid tumor types, uh, approvals of uh, checkpoint regulators, checkpoint inhibitors, either anti-CTLA-4 alone or anti-PD-1 alone or the combination of the two, which illustrates that the importance of a dual instructive and effector cell protective function all of a sudden has changed the world and has brought immunotherapy across solid tumor uh, types. And in the end, I don't think there's going to be a single solid tumor type that will be weak enough to be totally protected against full instruction of the immune system and full protection of the functioning of the immune system. And so we will see that it will, uh, it's not going to stop here. It's going to get better and better. And of course, we will achieve a second generation of instruction material and protective material, second generation of anti-CTLA-4, anti-PD-1, second generation of additional checkpoint inhibitors like LAC3 uh, uh, and so on that will orchestrate in the end a highly efficient immune response to a very large and broad spectrum of solid tumor. Yeah, I think, you know, the, the analogy I, I think about, the school analogy is a great one, obviously building the troops and then sending them to battle. And, you know, obviously CTLA-4 is all about expanding the, the troops and, and letting them identify that there is a threat and building that army. And then obviously uh, the army has to succeed and be re-fortified in the tumor microenvironment. And obviously PD-1 and the exhaustion markers, uh, activators like LAG-3 and others are all about uh, resurrecting these exhausted T cells so that they continue the fight. Priming though and, and recognizing uh, a tumor, a cold tumor as warm or hot has been to me a fundamental challenge with the first revolution. And obviously now we have the ability with short bursts of cytotoxic drugs or targeted therapy or ADCs or vaccines with combined with CTLA-4 or next generation regimens to really prime better. Um, but I, I see that as really one of the biggest areas. How do we make these tumors disturb them enough so that they reveal their immunogenicity uh, in, under stress so that, that that army can be developed and then obviously sending them to battle and making sure that they're fortified. Uh, how, do you see that uh, as sort of a fundamental issue now that's in front of us? Yeah. No, absolutely. And so the the chapter of providing the best instruction system has to do with how can you achieve uh, as much release of tumor antigen and tumor neoantigens uh, to improve the instruction material and instruction process. And in that sense, it's also understandable that combinations with chemotherapy and chemosensitive tumors is going to help because there's going to be additional release of um, uh, tumor antigens. And let's not forget, there's also the whole principle of immunogenic cell death, 
which is mediated by a number of very important uh, uh, chemotherapies that actually helps priming the immune system in a broad response that will be specific. But also um, at the level of the checkpoint inhibitors, you will see uh, a number of improvements. There will be checkpoint inhibitors that you can dose higher because they are less toxic and that will prolong and improve uh, instruction. But also you, you will see uh, that if you modulate a part of the checkpoint inhibitor, and then you can focus on the FC part of the antibody of these immune checkpoint inhibitors. Interestingly, macrophages have interferon gamma 2 uh, receptors by which they actually take off the anti-PD-1 that protects PD-1 expressing T cell. And then that effector cell now is naked and can be quickly neutralized by interaction with PDL1, which is abundant in the tumor microenvironment uh, and on tumor cells, and then you lose their function. And so you have the same phenomenon for anti-CTLA4. If you change the FC portion on your anti-CTLA4 uh, molecule, you will prolong the time that anti-CTLA4 can protect the T cell from being exposed. And then that T cell will have a prolonged instruction by the antigen presenting cells. So there is a longer period of teaching the T cells which antigens to recognize. And there will be a prolonged stimulation of these T cells to proliferate, which will lead to more greater diversity of T cell armies. And each army will also be bigger in amplitude. And that means if you have more, a greater variety of armies, and you have bigger armies, this in principle is a recipe for cure. And so we will see how technology will change and modulate the existing checkpoint inhibitors in a way where they will gain a lot of further efficacy and therefore will also penetrate in turning lukewarm tumors or not so responsive tumors into responsive tumors. So I think the future actually looks really, really bright because with only two checkpoint inhibitors, we got already this far, but now with the second generation of these checkpoint inhibitors and an expansion of checkpoint inhibitors, I think uh, we will cure actually more and more solid tumors. So um, that's a great topic to discuss, but I wanna to get to, uh, to two other topics I know that are close to both of our hearts. Um, one is, uh, Toxicity. You know, we've been through a lot in in uh, immunotherapy with you know vaccines that had no toxicity but no clinical benefit, and then we experienced obviously the capillary leak toxicities of high dose IL two with some rare but definable cures, and then we've moved to the checkpoints with with CTLA four and C and PD one more so with PD with CTLA four showing. As you move T cells around the body, obviously you cause inflammation. And then, of course, with, with, um, with engineered T cells, you can get into true cytokine release storm. So toxicity has been a big part of immunotherapies, reflecting T cells moving and doing their job. But they've also correlated 
with better clinical outcome. And you've been at the forefront of some of the, the melanoma studies that have really looked at this. And when I was at the bedside, we always liked to see some toxicity because it reflected T cell activation as long as we uh, monitored closely and managed it and reversed it quickly. Just give me your perspective on sort of toxicity, no pain, no gain, and how the field has sort of um, addressed these toxicities uh, really remarkably better in the last uh, five to 10 years. Yeah, so basically what happens is that with um, uh, these checkpoint inhibitors, you also reawaken some of the silent uh, autoimmune responses that are ongoing in our bodies but that are not necessarily uh, showing uh, clinical effects or do not create yet uh, a clinical uh, picture. Uh, but it's clear that with both anti-CTLA-4 and anti-PD-1, you can bring alive again uh, some autoimmune responses that otherwise remain unnoticed. And so, for instance, we do see thyroiditis uh, leading to hypothyroidism uh, with both uh, molecules. You can reawaken an autoimmune response in your colon and have a, a colitis uh, that, you know, resembles Crohn's uh, colitis or uh, that type of an inflammatory response. And you can see that uh, in a number of uh, fields, uh, you know, there's some pneumonitis uh, in some 5% of patients. There are some dermatitis in some 5 to 7% of patients. So we call these all together as a transversal phenomenon immune-related adverse events. Now, interestingly, you must have some immune system activity to create immune-related adverse events. And so, interestingly, we found in our adjuvant anti-PD-1 trial that patients who had all sorts of low-grade immune-related adverse events, right, uh, receiving anti-PD-1, actually had a further 40% reduction of relapses compared to those who did also receive anti-PD-1, but did not express any immune-related re adverse events. And we have seen those phenomena already back in the days of high-dose IL-2. Uh, so how functional and how awake and capable is the immune system is of importance. And so you may actually see a little bit more of this in the adjuvant setting rather than in the advanced tumor setting, especially if patients already have gone through, you know, one or two lines of chemotherapy and uh, other rather mitigating uh, treatments of the function of the immune system. And so this is one of the reasons why I'm a, a big fan of bringing innovation and immunotherapy to the front door rather than you know, try it out once all other treatment options in advanced uh, disease have failed and you're basically left with an immune suppressed patient who has undergone, you know, one or two lines of chemotherapy where also uh, reduced bone marrow function may be uh, one of the components. And it is very clear that right now we are living in the time of the second revolution in immunotherapy, which is the neoadjuvant immunotherapy, which means that you, before doing surgery on palpable lesions or even primary tumors, you expose the system, you expose the patient to 
checkpoint inhibitors and you actually get the maximum antigen reaction programming out of the primary tumor or out of lymph node metastases in these patients to fully instruct to the fullest the immune system with the widest diversity of T-cell clones and the biggest size of each T-cell clone army possible. And we have seen this in patients with palpable nodal disease and melanoma with neoadjuvant anti-PD-1 or the combination of anti-CTLA-4 plus anti-PD-1, which actually then shows that you get almost a doubling of a pathologic complete response of these lymph nodes, up to 70% in patients which have no living tumor cells left in their uh, lymph nodes. And you can do exactly the same thing in tumor uh, mutational burden, high tumors like uh, MSI colorectal cancer, where you can have over 80% complete responses of rectal cancers, provided they are DNA repair deficient, therefore they're bursting with antigens, and you can basically melt those tumors away with anti-PD-1 or a combination of anti-PD-1 and anti-CTLA-4. That means that those tumors should not be operated. Those tumors should be treated with immunotherapy, and those patients can be protected against undergoing a rectal resection. And you will see the same development in bladder cancer, and nobody wants to have his bladder resected if it can be avoided. And we have these neoadjuvant therapies now with either anti-PD-1 based or anti-PD-1 plus anti-CTLA-4 based combos with chemotherapy that changes the phase of resectable lung cancer, resectable um, uh, esophageal cancer, squamous cell cancers in the face, and so on. So we are right now in the orchestral pre-phase of changing fundamentally the management of patients with primary tumors or lymph node metastatic tumors, and they will be dealt with, and their best treatment options will prove to be neoadjuvant immunotherapy to avoid all sorts of uh, mutilating surgical uh, interventions. So this whole revolution of immunotherapy has only begun. So we have a second generation of the checkpoint inhibitors, and we have the utility factor of using checkpoint inhibitors in the neoadjuvant setting. And follow all what's going to happen the next three to five years in most solid tumors. The whole patient management system will change. Yeah, what's really fascinating about, as you've been a huge proponent of, of neoadjuvant for, for so long, uh, well before it became you know, very apparent this was a new way forward, is that these, these responses in very short periods of time um, have been incredibly, the deep responses pathologically have been incredibly predictive of event-free and overall survival as they've developed. Very different, I think, than cytotoxic, you know, chemo or even targeted where responses have been less durable. This, I think, reflects the, the metastatic setting where deep durable responses really are the hallmark of IO. And certainly as you move earlier before tumor has built up its defenses, so to speak, in terms of metastasis potential and, and hostile microenvironments, it's even more predictive. So I think what you're saying uh, is really that the field has moved really when opportune now to, to really going before uh, surgery and then potentially sparing patients 
morbid surgeries and adjuvant therapies even that that uh, will lead to long-term uh, uh, toxicity issues. Innovation at the front door, immunotherapy at the front door is going to be the ne next chapter in conquering cancer. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so some lessons learned, you know, from just comment, you know, immunotherapy has taken some time to develop in terms of the lessons learned. And I think growing up in the sort of cytotoxic uh, age of, of cancer treatment, um, we've learned a number of things. We've learned that uh, uh, responses are deep when they occur with IO and they're, they're durable. Stable disease, depending on the mechanism of the IO, can be also quite prolonged. And even progression can be um, uh, different after exposure to IO uh, with more indolent progression. And, um, how, as, as we move forward and we have these observations, uh, thoughts about the regulatory pathway. I know you, you've, you've thought a lot about this. Obviously, uh, uh, this is evolving just like toxicity management is, but I'd love your thoughts on, a little bit on, on how you see the regulatory environment uh, with IO in particular. Yeah, so the regulatory environment is still a bit nervous about neoadjuvant, uh, but at the same time, you know, we should also realize that when we started neoadjuvant or induction chemotherapy, so to speak, for breast cancers, it led to a highly significant reduction of uh, breast amputations, right? We could reduce tumor size, do a local excision, and uh, salvage uh, the breast. Now, we actually never went to the FDA or the EMA for FDA or EMA approval of neoadjuvant chemotherapy. Uh, it became, because it was rational and illogical, it became best medical practice. And the patients, of course, chose to have neoadjuvant chemotherapy and uh, have a salvage of their breast. So we are currently a little bit struggling how to get the neoadjuvant immunotherapy through the regulatory processes. The most important thing to observe there is that the neoadjuvant treatments do not only have the potential to reduce surgical interventions, but they actually show in the randomized trials that you see uh, a much better uh, impact on relapse-free survival and overall survival. And this has now also been shown in you know, locally advanced uh, uh, but resectable uh, lung cancers. Uh, to be true for anti-PD-1, to be true for anti-PD-1 plus uh, anti-CTLA-4, uh, in combo with chemotherapy, and uh, then uh, followed only by adjuvant anti-PD-1, for instance, uh, with results in terms of reductions of relapse-free survival and uh, benefits in overall survival. And of course, the poster child of this is uh, the data in DNA repair deficient rectal cancer. Uh, so here, FDA, EMA, and the regulatory agencies really uh, must become very facilitating to make this happen, to make it reimbursed, and to make it uh, the new standard of care. Because I think in the face of the data that we see in MSI, so DNA repair deficient tumors, um, is so high that uh, some of these questions are not even randomizable. You cannot do any more a randomized clinical trial with rectal cancers that are MSI, because all patients who would 
uh, get the lottery number of surgery first, would refuse the surgery and would find the funds to get neoadjuvant anti-PD-1-based and anti-CTLA-4 induction or neoadjuvant therapy. So here we really have to communicate with the patient platforms, the patient advocacy organizations, and with the regulators to make sure that we are not being um, held back. Very important, uh, this. So at Agenis, obviously our pipeline is really targeted to making cold tumors hot. And obviously we've, we've generated some pretty exciting data in, in very refractory situations. We're now starting to, to move, as you said, to this neoadjuvant setting and, and really opening up the field to, to um, really a much wider population than the original you know, MS high, more narrow, subtype of, of rectal cancer. So more to come on that. And but as philosophically, it just makes so much sense that we would we would be focusing on tumors early, generating deep durable responses that then really mitigate a whole litany of subsequent therapies, both surgical radiation and uh, and adjuvant chemo and, and going forward. But most importantly, I think Patients want to be, uh, let's get back to the, the uh, immuno-oncology curve. They want to be long-term survivors. And one of the features of IO therapy is, is this ability to have a relatively short duration of therapy that then produces long-term survival with time uh, off treatment. And this is precious for patients and families particularly in advanced cancer. And now as we move to earlier stage, we're really uh, into very much a curative mindset with short durations. So just, uh, we're running out of time in our first podcast, but I, I'd love your, so some closing thoughts on uh, how you, what would you would say going forward to patients and advocacy groups and caregivers in terms of what you've seen in terms of these uh, where they want to be on the survival curve and how we might get them more of these patients towards that. So, you know, in summary, we should not forget that the immunoscore system was based on primary garden variety colorectal tumors, not the MSI colorectal tumors, but the garden variety colorectal tumors that for a long time we thought would not respond to immunotherapy. That made no sense because the immunoscore said that they are actually filled with T-cells and that these primary tumors, if they would be programmed with checkpoint inhibitors, can be tackled phenomenally well with the checkpoint inhibitors. And that is going to be true for many tumors. What does it mean? It means innovation with immunotherapy at the front door. It means that patients will get a rapidly increasing portfolio of options in various tumors where immuno-oncology, where immunotherapy will become an option and a real option up front. That is an option that will not only potentially reduce the surgical interventions, but will certainly then on top of that lead to fewer relapses and an improvement in overall survival because the whole system is programmed and is now having a memory system to continue to work against tumor cells. Um, this means that for the durability and the quality of responses, you need involvement of the immune system. 
an immune system that we can now stimulate and protect in its effector function with checkpoint inhibitors. And so um, uh, uh, this, this is going to be shorter treatments, but more treatment upfront, potentially less surgery in a number of indications, and then actually not needing anymore necessarily prolonged adjuvant therapies because you were already cured when your immune system was functionally optimal and optimally programmed to achieve these kind of results. So um, it's really a very good uh, message of hope uh, to the patients. This is not just hope. This is rational because we know now how things work and how we can improve the schooling system of the immune system. When I think of, you know, 20 years, a little over 20 years ago when we were first uh, dosing the first dipilimumab uh, in melanoma patients, what we knew then about the immune system and what we know now almost 23 years later, it's really an extraordinary journey of breakthrough of, of, of success. But the translational science and the immunology has just exploded um, in recent uh, years and in the last decade. And I'm incredibly excited about the tools that we will have to both uh, unleash the power and memory of the immune system, use it earlier in treatment, and, uh, and be able to know quickly, have, is the patient benefiting or not, and be ready to give additional immune or non-immune therapies very quickly in terms of improving long-term outcomes. So I just want to, you know, we could talk for hours and I think I want you to thank you for being my first guest. I look forward to bringing you back in the future. Uh, but most of all, thank you for helping me launch the Immuno-Oncology Curve podcast. And, and to our early listeners, thank you as well. And um, please check back again, follow me on LinkedIn, and you'll always know when there's a new episode. And, it, and finally, give me some feedback of any kind. Well, almost any kind. I'm, I'm especially interested in knowing the issues and questions that we should address and the guests that you'd like to hear from as we illuminate the progress and potential of immunotherapies, following the curve to better outcomes against cancer.